Welcome back to Breaking the Law. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Our approach is simple. Um, the traditional model of law is breaking people. And because the traditional approach to law is broken, it's time to break free from the law as it's been practiced for, frankly, a really, really long time. Today, we're taking a deeper dive into how the traditional approach to law is broken. Uh, we're really grateful today to be joined again by Danielle Hall uh, and uh, my co-host, uh, Ashlyn Linscog, and I'm Sam Foreman. I'm Ron Burgundy. No, I'm not. Can we edit that out? Don't <laughs> do it. Leave Ron it in there. Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> Our podcast does not smell of rich mahogany and many leather-bound books, but we promise you that we have a lot of good things to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, Danielle, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, uh, some of the things that you've observed uh, through your work with um, the uh, uh, Kansas Lawyers Assistance Program, the Institute for Wellbeing and the Law, and, and the many other activities that you're involved with. Um, that what are some of the things that you've seen that really help you feel like you can start to see, okay, here's here's what might be broken that's causing some of these, you know, negative outcomes that we've talked about. So we've talked on other episodes about, you know, mental health, substance abuse, burnout. We've talked about the impact on, you know, family relationships and other things. But you know, all of those come from someplace. And so when you think about, hey, the traditional approach to law might be broken or is broken what are some of the things that you're observing yeah you know i think through through conversation and discussion which by the way has increased dramatically um, i think for a number of different reasons one being the well-being movement itself but you throw in there uh, the perfect storm of a pandemic and people start talking about their mental health more mm -hmm. and these discussions become more prominent and that has made its way as well into the practice of law but through those conversations you know what has a tendency to come up is just some of the things that you know we've already talked about on some of our episodes with the traditional way that law is practiced right um the focus on billables uh on the money aspect side of things that also some of our obligations that we create as it relates to our clients due to a lack of boundaries. Um, mm -hmm. So there's some individual aspect there that also has a tendency to play a role, particularly when we're talking about things like overwhelm and burnout and high levels of stress that we see within the practice of law. But though, then you have this aspect of longstanding traditions, uh, longstanding culture of just how we have modeled uh, firm life um, and mm -hmm. even to some degree how the law is even practiced in legal aid agencies as well as government agencies. It's just this traditional aspect or approach that, you know, might have worked <laughs> at one point in time. Um, but I think what we are slowly seeing or maybe more quickly seeing now uh, than we have before is that it's impacting people in not the greatest of ways, uh, mm -hmm. particularly when we don't have mechanisms in place to assist people with who are struggling, um, because that's the other component of this that I see, right? We can identify uh, the issues uh, that people are dealing with and the struggles that they are seeing due to the way that the law is practiced. But the, when you couple that then with not without providing them the resources necessary to implement good coping mechanisms um, to make those changes or empower them to do something as simple as putting into place boundaries. Uh, then we create these environments in which, you know, people really want to thrive, but they don't have the resources to actually thrive. And I think that those are the conversations that we are starting to have as individuals and as a lawyer population in what we want to see in the practice of law. No, that's great. That's great. Um, when you think about, I mean, because we've, we've talked about kind of working definitions of a traditional approach to law um, on on our initial episode, but some of the things that, you know, that I think of when I think about the traditional model of law, just so that folks that are listening or watching will follow along with, along with that, I think of something where the economic model is dominated by the billable hour. I mean, that's really the king. Um, where the hero, if you will, of the traditional law model is the workaholic. It's somebody who's idolized for how many hours they're able to get, how much 
money they're able to exchange that time for, you know, the king of workaholic mountain, um, which is a board game. Well, Definitely talk about launching, but never actually do. Patent pending. Uh, (laughs) 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 Working on it. (laughs) Um, Where, uh, you know, culture, internal culture is uh, image driven. Um, There's huge amounts of pressure for people to perform, to fit in, to fit the part, to look the part, where Mm -hmm. individuality um, is not something that's valued or embraced. There's a one size fits all dynamic to most things. Comp structures, in addition to you know, prizing the billable hour above all else, um, comp structures are uh, frequently, you know, in addition to being one size fits all in many cases, um, you know, while people are associates and incentivizing people to become workaholics, um, as people progress through their careers, they're often black box. Um, type of things where people don't know how, you know, their comp is going to be generated or how their comp is going to be determined. It's going to be some committee sitting in a room, you know, without enough input, without any kind of transparency or predictability, determining what these people are going to make or what their share of it's going to be in the next year based on not necessarily merit or things that people can control, but, you know, based off of other factors. Um, so I think those are some of the things I think of um, that we've talked about um, a bit, you know, in terms of traditional law. Does that fit with what you think about when you think about traditional law or what other items would you add to that? Yeah, that, that uh, definitely are some of the big highlights that I think about when you talk about traditional law. Um, but I also think about it from the perspective of, of solos and smalls, kind of that concept mm-hmm. and mentality of you eat what you kill, mm-hmm. right? You, you got to have the ability to keep the lights on. So just as maybe we see at a large firm level, the focus on billable hours, when it comes to our solos and smalls, you know, they're focused on keeping the lights on and ensuring that they can pay their bills and they can survive at the end of the day. And And so that kind of focus and looking at it from a traditional sort of perspective even gets those folks into that atypical grind that we see when it comes to the practice of law. Yeah, no, that's a great, I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh, we, we talk a lot, or I have a tendency to talk a lot about big law um, and to get lazy in my conversation and almost treat big law as being synonymous with traditional law. And I think almost across the board, big law does embrace traditional law, but not not entirely. And nobody probably entirely fits that definition of, of traditional law. But I think it's really important, as you've done, to note that traditional law is independent of the size of the firm. Mm-hmm. You know, solos and smalls can be just as, um, uh, you know, a part of traditional law as a big law firm and being part of a smaller law firm or a solo doesn't mean that you're free from those pressures or from the pain that that model can create. When I um, was looking at starting a law firm and and interviewing and talking to other people about what that might feel like or look like, some of the advice I got was even when things are good, you're not, you know, struggling to keep the lights on when money is coming in and it is you realize, well, if I just give three more hours today, then uh, it's even, you know, I, I can almost get it down to a dime what I'm going to make. And and it's almost still that same drive, even though it's just you looking at you to say, well, I could produce more. I could aim higher. I could do more. And I'll just skip this one basketball game or whatever it is um, to get this extra money or, or do those things. I think it, the, the the practice of law, the, the time value connection that we make money by giving our time away, I think sort of drives that uh, across firm size um, problem. You have to be very intentional about not, you know, giving it all away for sure. One thing I think um, that really well, or that, that at least when I think about it, illustrates really well what's broken about the law is um, the situation that mothers find themselves in trying to be active practitioners in the law. Um, there's a really great article that we'll link to um, regarding an ABA study on the impact that motherhood has on attorneys. And I'll just hit a couple of high points here. Um, but it talks about the double burden that a lot of women feel. Um, and it's causing a lot of mothers to leave um, the practice of law altogether, but uh, in particular to leave um, a lot of firms um, because there's, they're not, there isn't a space where they feel like 
um, they, they can fit in and where they can thrive. Um, this quote jumped out to me a lot in the article. I left private practice 17 years ago after having my first child because I was forced to prove whether I would prioritize work over being a mom. And that just breaks my heart. I mean, thinking about the culture and the model um, that firms have embraced to where somebody would even think that that's appropriate. Um, that what I need to do to protect myself, to protect my firm is I need to go to this person that's just, um, had, a, had a, <laughs> brought a human being into the world, um, and to ask them where their loyalty lies. Um, some other highlights or I don't know if highlights is the wrong, right word. Another, a couple other observations that jump out from the article. Where's the good um, <laughs> women lawyers, <laughs> <laughs> Women lawyers, now I do sound like Ron Burgundy, uh, <laughs> who are uh, who are mothers all too often face um, the conflicting societal and cultural demands of being a good mother who always puts her children and family first, while at the same time striving to be an ideal lawyer who has undivided career focus and a 24-7 commitment to her work. As a result of this dual expectation, data from the survey shows that attorneys who are mothers were more likely to be subject to disparaging comments about their ability and ambition, less access to business development and other career opportunities, lower compensation, lack of advancement, and other actions that sideline their careers. 61% of mothers surveyed indicated that they had, de- that they had dealt with demeaning comments about being a working parent compared with 20 26% of fathers surveyed. I will say that I benefit from a uh, having my wife as the primary caregiver for our children um, that enables me to do things, but I definitely feel like I benefit from this bias. Like when, because uh, I'm I'm fairly involved in my children's lives, but I feel like I definitely get credit for that as if there's a lower bar for dads um, than there is for moms. Um, and so not that that necessarily People ties don't directly into our conversation, but point out that you're a working dad. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, so, so are you a working dad or cause I, I, I'm, right. <laughs> I would like to be a stay at home dad. I've told my wife this many times, but the, the conversation hasn't gone as far as I'd like. So sure. Sure. Um, you but, know, that's something that has always puzzled me is I get, you know, you're, yeah. you're a working mom and no one, my, my husband works full time and. No one's like, well, he's also a working dad. He's just, yeah. he's just their dad. Like yeah. so, you know, I think it. Uh, you're, you're spot on. It, it for sure can. Uh, the burden can be heavy. Yeah, I, I think when I when I look at this um, type of commentary here and this type of study, to me, it, it illustrates a couple of things about what's broken. It speaks to here's what the business model prizes. I mean, the business model model prizes performance. And when there's a competing time demand, that's reflected in how people are able to advance. Um, and I think it also speaks heavily to culture because I look at the pressures that people's peers have placed on them. Um, that, I mean, rather shocking interaction that someone has of, hey, where's your lo- where do your loyalties lie? Are you going to be a mom or are you going to be a good attorney for the firm? Which one are you going to pick? Whose side are you on? Um uh, and then, you know, the, the demeaning comments, there's another one in this article from somebody who told, who was asked by one of their peers. And I've always been told you never ask, but they were asked by a male attorney in the firm, are you pregnant? And when they said, no, I'm not pregnant. It's like, oh, good. You'll have more time for work. Um, which is just, I mean, alarming to me that that's what some, that that's the culture that some, uh, firms have created. So you have this both of these kind of playing in tandem of the culture and the business model, I think really working together to where um, in particular, it creates these kind of impacts um, on, on many people in the practice, working dads also, um, but uh, in particular moms, because as data shows us heavily, yeah, moms have a disproportionate um, level of responsibility and expectations Um uh, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Um, and so more of that um, work at home falls on them, which limits their ability to go to things like business development functions in the evening, you know, limits the amount of capacity that they have um, for some of those other things, um, while continuing to define success around the scorecard that the firm perpetuates, which is go bill more hours and that'll lead to your advancement. Um Anyway, I've done too much talking. Somebody else say something. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I'll just 
I'll just say what's what's really interesting about this article is that the things that I have even seen and kind of this bias throughout even my own career, um, you know, the the commentary that's associated with it. But I would push it even mm. farther as far as in some legal environments that I've worked in where I have seen, you know, if there is a policy, for instance, of you are allowed to bring your kid to work for so many mm-hmm. months after you have returned from maternity leave. I've seen, you know, places where paternity leave is being started to be implemented and maybe the dad does bring the baby to work rather than a mom. Mm -hmm. And what you see is you see people just swoop in and say, oh my goodness, let me help you. As far as it relates to maybe a working mother who has the decision to do that and makes that choice where you've seen the negative comments about the kid being at work. So I've witnessed that for my own eyes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and personally, I went through struggling at the very beginning of my career after I got married. What was I going to do? Because this was the reality that I knew was the culture of the Mm -hmm. practice of law. Um, And here I am to this day, you know, my husband's also a lawyer and he chose to support me and my decisions in not having children right away. And I'm not afraid to say my age, you know, I'm approaching 40 now and I'm still struggling with thinking about this particular topic and making this decision, knowing that my time's probably running out and I need to make a decision as it relates to this. And it's a it's a sad reality that I think many women faced when it comes to this aspect of the culture of the profession. Mm. Yeah. It um, is unbelievable. How the I think the amount of progress that we as an industry could make if we allowed or created space for men to also be primary caregivers of children and be working dads. So like not saying, well, your wife's taking a maternity leave, but what do you need, like a couple days off? No, being a parent to a newborn baby is not primarily, a, it is not just the duty of the person who uh, grew the human from scratch, but also the other person, you know, that may be a part of that relationship. And if we normalize men participating in these work and these actions, then it becomes less strange or, or less of a woman's responsibility. And it, it's, oh, she's going to come back from maternity. Or is she going to come back? Who knows? It, it's those types of things. And so I think one of the things that we have to do, um, and it feels kind of backwards when I talk to other people about it, but we have to tell men uh, when they're having children you need to take some time off and you need to go mm-hmm. be support your wife support your baby and even if you you're feeling the pressure at work feeling like i i didn't have mm-hmm. this baby so i can't i can't be home you need to set the stage that says parental leave as a parent i'm going to take parental leave and i'm going to support my wife in the leave that she also has to take because when i had all three of my children um, my husband was in different scenarios but with the last baby he took tw- he had 12 weeks of leave and he took it. And it was powerful um, in the message that he was sending in his own work culture to say, I'm afforded 12 weeks of leave and I'm going to spend this time with my baby. And I think that moves the needle um, when men, it's not an easy choice for them either at all, but um, to allow, to legitimize needing to take time off for a baby, that it's not just a woman problem, um, but that it's a parent, it's a parent thing that this is Mm -hmm. what parents do. Um, And I, I think it is such a tough choice that um, professional women are having to make. And, you know, you hear that commentary. You have to work like you uh, don't have children, but you have to be a mom like you don't have, have work. a job. <laughs> and it's like, I don't I'm barely doing either of these things. Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to give it all and, and I'm just doing the best I can. And, um, you know, my children aren't old enough to criticize me yet, but they're getting there. Um, but, yeah, it just um, we've got to figure out how to move the needle in this area because we're not seeing um, the rate at which women are going to law school. We're not seeing that matched rate in which women are being leaders at firms or being Mm -hmm. equity partners at firms because somewhere in the middle we lose them. And that sucks. Yeah. 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 You know, I think there's also another aspect to this kind of to build on this topic of women's issues as it relates to uh, a well-being aspect of it. Because the other thing that we don't often address, you know, there's such stigma associated with mental health issues as it is. But then you want to add on to it the component of some of the more specific mental health conditions that women may experience just as a result of being women, uh, particularly when you talk about stuff like postpartum and how Mm. is that 
dealt with um, at the firm and in, within the firm culture, right? So a woman takes maternity leave, you know, for the pregnancy and then has a mental health condition in the afterwards. And, you know, you've got that added pressure of, I got to get back to work because I already took the leave. Um, so now I can't deal with this mental health issue that is significantly impacting me personally and professionally and my ability probably to uh, be my best self for my clients. But I just have to do the whole, you know, suck it up and go to work um, because there's almost a, a double edged sword of stigma that's associated with something such as postpartum. Yes, totally. And, you know, I think that is is kind of more evident in the fact when we talk about identifying mental health as a health issue, not um, as a, if you were diagnosed with, you know, God forbid cancer, people are going mm -hmm. to rally around you and like, you know, what can I do? Can we provide meals? Take as much time as you need. Um, when you have a baby, you know, or um, are struggling postpartum, you're like, when are you coming back? When are mm -hmm. you coming back? And you're like, what? Hmm, I'm not sure. And so uh, I think you're totally right. I think um, that the stigma around it, the ability, the mental health piece of it is still so important. And it, I think, too, when we talk about, you know, how is the law broken um, in, in, uh, through this lens and we think about um, what even big law, traditional law, using that word interchangeably, what um, – the what they're saying about this right because when they're recruiting when they're you know hiring female lawyers doing those things they're i i'm not i cannot believe not that i've you know had this experience or been recruited by a bunch of big law firms but um that they're saying actually we hate babies and women and we don't uh give time for maternity leave and we don't we think there's too many humans in the world as it is i think that they're saying we have work-life balance we um, our culture here is very family friendly. We want um, you to be successful here, and we, you know, have this family-driven culture. Um, and then, mm -hmm. what is the actual experience? You know, what is what is the actual culture, or what is the experience for these people who are entering these law firms under the mindset that, oh, well, they've recruited me under these thoughts um, or under these principles, and then you know, it's a whole bamboozle. You're like, wow, look at that. Uh, I don't know if, if you have people talk about that being experienced, Danielle, in your work, that they were sold a bill of goods that they're like, wait a minute, this feels wrong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I see that at all kind of different levels, uh, big law, medium law, uh, you know, smaller firms, sure. where that is often a topic of discussion. Um, and sometimes it, it's a struggle for people to make that decision as far as what's in their best interest, both professionally and personally. Uh, when you've signed on to work somewhere and, and it's what you know, um, for some people that I work with, you know, it's their very first job out of law uh -huh. school. Um, and for some of them, it's hard to be empowered to say, you know what, I need something that's better. So I'm going to find something that's different. Um, but, you know, that's a lot of the discussion as far as why I thought it was going to be something. But what I'm learning is, is that that's not the culture that I thought it was going to be. On an individual level, I think the term is cognitive dissonance. When somebody has a mm -hmm. set of beliefs that they ascribe to and then they don't act in accordance with those beliefs. Um, something that I've been pondering on this general topic is what is the difference between a firm's stated culture and their actual culture? Um, and, and how do those really come to be? Um, and I'm curious for your thoughts, Danielle, and, and certainly Ashlyn as well. Um, how, how often do firms um, of any size truly seem to live out their stated cultural values and how often does that actually line up with their you know with their actual culture or their true culture right right and, you know you can go to a firm's website most mm -hmm. have uh you know their their stated culture all over the place you know on their website it's, it's a huge recruitment tool for new associates um but Sometimes in reality, you know, when you get there, what was stated um, 
at a very kind of surface level, right? We embrace DEIB. We embrace well-being practices. Mm -hmm. Um, You get in and you start seeing the specifics and the specifics don't line up with what the large bullet points were maybe on the website. Mm -hmm. And so for, you know, newer associates, graduates, people looking to transition in and out of practice, you know, looking beyond that website becomes extremely important, right? Mm-hmm. I often tell folks that are looking for jobs, right? It's your job to interview them just as much as it is for them to interview you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having that understanding going into that process, I think is extremely helpful. But the, then the question becomes, well, then how do I navigate it? Because I go in for the interview process, but I'm being told maybe the same thing that's on the website. Right. Uh, and where I see particularly young lawyers run into problems is they don't have the connections yet in the legal community, right? To know who to call or who to talk to, mm. to really figure out what that firm culture is. So I don't know about you all, but you know, now I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have any recommendations for, for lawyers who struggle with that, who maybe haven't made the connections on the front end to figure out the culture of the firm? Yeah, I think, so this is a question that a friend of mine um, shared with me that he used when he was picking a firm and he was top of his class when he came out and had lots of options. But one of the questions he asked the firms he was interviewing with was, when was the last time you took a vacation? Um, and I think that there's some of those questions to be prepared for going in if you want to determine a firm's culture um, to think about, okay, what's a question I could ask where I might get an honest answer that would help me really test out, is this something that's real? So if a firm says, hey, we we celebrate work-life balance. Well, one way that that should show up is in, um, you know, is is on a vacation. You know, how, how often does somebody take a vacation? Or when was the last time that you, you know, uh, took time off and left your work phone at work or something like that? Um, just some of those questions to kind of get it, get a sense of it. But I, I think that's also dangerous or it can be dangerous for people who want to get in. And that's the top of their personal scorecard is I got to get this job because I got to get into the workforce. And, you know, that there are some personal things that are just going to have to take a back seat to that. Um, and I don't want to judge that decision. I just want to encourage folks that feel like they're in that place where they need to make that to make it intentionally and to know what they're doing. Because um, I would feel like where people get in trouble is they make that decision by lying to themselves without intentionality and not being like, okay, I'm picking this and it's not reflective of my core long-term values, but it is truly a short-term decision. And this is what I am making it for. And I'm making it on purpose and I'm making it to harmonize with my long-term values. And here's the end to date. And I think that's really important. Um, we've got to be honest with ourselves. And as somebody who um, has realized increasingly through adulthood that um, I'm really, really good at deceiving myself or <laughs> I like you had a better way of describing it that was much more kind earlier, Ashlyn. It was rationalizing behavior. Mm-hmm. I'll call it what I think it is. I lie to myself. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. Uh, but rationalizing through those short, you know, quote unquote, short term compromises and then become long term habits. Mm-hmm. And I think if people are really honest with themselves about here's what I want, here's why I'm making this decision, but then put an end date on it. Um, and I think that that's critical. And then I, I really liked your reference to they don't have the connections. A lot of people don't have mm-hmm. the connections to either test out and extrapolate. Hey, this is what the website says, but what is it really? I think, you know, go to your law professors, say, hey, who's somebody you trust that's going to know or do you have direct knowledge? What is it really like? I really I just really want to know without somebody thinking, oh, well, they don't want to work hard because I am going to work hard. That's why I'm here. But I'm also going to have really good boundaries and I'm going to be a healthy person. Um, uh, But then I think people need to um, network hard. Um, because, uh, and, uh, on, on another episode, Janet mentioned something that I thought was really, really good. Sometimes people don't have options because they don't have access and right. they haven't been provided access. Um, and I think that that's something to be really, really intentional about is go create your own access. And that might be through, you know, creating relationships with partners out of the law firms or associates out of the law firms, you know, start to build your own book of business, do all those things, create your own access. Cause if you have access, you have options. Um, and, uh, so, so I think that that's, that's part of how I think about it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, 
I'm speaking from a place of privilege here having, mm -hmm. um, and I recognize that, but I, I think truly uh, we, t you know, we talked in, um, in an episode um, about modeling behavior, mm -hmm. right? I think the way that we can identify whether who we're, who's interviewing us and we're talking about cultural, stated cultural versus actual culture is can we see the people who we're interacting with, whether it be on this interview or on a callback or anything, can they model the level of vulnerability we're willing to share with them? Because I think there's strength in um, lawyers being able to just show an ounce of themselves, of, of their, hu your, their human nature. Um, and so really, um, you know, if you've, if you've made the decision that you need to, to get this job because it is what it is. I, I wholly respect that and have been there um, and made decisions like that. But when you're really being thoughtful about finding a good fit culture-wise and you want to see whether the state of culture is the actual culture, really see if you start to share or be your authentic self or, um, you know, show up to those interviews being who you are, see if that's returned to you in kind. And if you're met with, you know, very robotic behavior or behavior that's not uh, matching your energy, then you can kind of be like, okay, well, your culture said that you were fun, but this is not fun. So actually, uh, the, and I've ended an interview and said, hey, I, I'm not sure that we're a good fit, and that's okay. And you know, it just, um, I don't think that I'm, I'm what you're looking for, and uh, that's okay too. I think if you prioritize mm -hmm. those types of things, it's, it takes a whole lot of confidence, and it's not easy to do. And again, uh, some, some access to, to give you the privilege of being able to make some tough choices for sure. I have one last thought to uh, to add, um, and it's a particular kind of question. And it takes some you need to prepare this kind of question in advance, and so have a sense of what are the values that you want to test in an interview process. Um, but is ask <laughs> we've all been in those rooms where it's like, hey, I have a friend who has a problem, right? And everybody <laughs> exactly. knows that you're talking about themselves, <laughs> so it's in that same genre, if you will. But asking it like this, like, hey. Um, have you, you know, if you had an associate that was trying to leave and they were, you know, uh, expressing concern about work-life balance, um, you know, how would you convince them to stay? Mm. Um, mm. Because I think if you ask it in that way of how do you convince somebody to stay who's expressing a concern, I think if you ask a question like that, it depersonalizes it. Um, so it makes it not necessarily about you as the applicant, um, but it also attacks it from a different angle that an interviewer might not be thinking about exactly how you're. Um, and so you might get a more candid answer. You might get a more candid answer um, right. on something like that. I've asked that kind of a question in scholarship interviews where um, it was some scholarships for folks that were, you know, long-term Kansas residents. And so it was, Hey, you know, instead of asking like, are you committed to staying and practicing law in Kansas where everyone knows the credited response, the only response and dear God, you better not give a different one is yes, I will be here till my ashes decay in the ground, you know, <laughs> is to ask it a little bit differently of, Hey, if you had a friend who was talking about, you know, who loved Kansas and was talking about leaving the state to practice somewhere else, how would you convince them to stay? Mm -hmm. um, because I think it, it, um, I think it's a little bit more useful of a question and it gets a little bit more creative of a response. Um, so d does that answer your question, Danielle? It does. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious um, to get both of your thoughts on, you know, we talk about, okay, stated culture versus actual culture and we're, where we're talking about these different things and, and talking them in theory, but it's a two-part question. So um, in your thoughts and experiences, um, how would you describe common or typical stated culture in sort of the traditional law model? And then a follow-up to that is, what it, would you describe the actual culture um, the same way in the, a traditional law firm in the sense that we've been talking about it? Or, or how would you describe both those things? And Sam, you have to go first. Oh, I do? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Mm -hmm. I'm very prepared for this question. Uh -huh. um, so I think the typical stated culture is going to be things like what you'll find if you look at almost any big law website, which is we prize excellence. We prize service. You know, we prize our team. Um, we prize and value diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, we prize community. And, and so uh, integrity, um, a lot of very non-surprising things when it comes to stated culture. Um, I think when I look at things like actual culture, I think the values that seem to rise to the top are 
um, we value um, maximizing your productivity um, from a billable hour and a billable dollar standpoint. Um, we value and prioritize people that are willing to do anything and everything that the client asks whenever they want and are constantly available. Mm-hmm. Um, people need to be always on and always available. Um, we value and prioritize um, being at the absolute top of everyone's priority list at all times. Um, to the exclusion, I think, of all other things. Um, uh, I think that those are those are some animating characteristics that I see um, yeah. uh, from an actual cultural perspective. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's others, but but those are those are some of the things that come to my mind to start with. Yeah. What about you, Danielle? Yeah, you know, Sam, the whole, uh, you know, availability aspect of things mm. is one that's huge that commonly comes up in my conversation with with lawyers who may be thinking about leaving. And what's interesting in that regard is when I have those conversations, you know, I'll ask, is this actual culture? Is this stated culture? Like, you know, why is it that this is your, your perception that you have to be on all of the time? And I think in some ways, you know, you're going to have those firms that, yes, that that's actual expectation and it's very clear. But -hmm. I think in other instances, what I have seen is, um, you know, lawyers tell me, well, I really don't know. I kind of just assumed that part of that is behavior, Mm. right? What we see out of everybody else, our colleagues around us. But the other aspect of that, I think, is this sort of what we've been talking about this whole time, this like long standing tradition Mm. where maybe instead of stated culture, maybe we don't have statements about it at all. Right. And so all we have well is put. just kind of what we see from everybody. But then you got people who have these kind of assumptions because this has been the tradition that we have come to know to yet to where, you know, maybe this isn't what the firm is really wanting, but they just haven't had actual conversations about what they want their culture to be. So I think that's another aspect of this. You're going to have those that fall into the category mm-hmm. of, you know, we're going to state this on the website to attract our our associates that we want to attract to our firm. But I think you're going to have this other set of firms who've never actually really had conversations about it and ask themselves the question, what is our culture that we actually want to want to embrace within our our law firm. And when we don't ask that question mm-hmm. and we don't define it, then what immediately creeps in is those assumptions that are related to the traditional law practice. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, a way of describing it in leadership literature and I'm going to mangle it here, but you have the culture that you either create or you permit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. where a lot of law firms are is they haven't created an intentional purposeful culture. Um, and I'm really glad you pointed that out of there's all these assumptions that have just stacked up over time. This is the way we've always done it. We've got this long standing um, set of habits that just get passed down from generation to generation with very little modification. And then they just get replicated, you know, down the line without anybody stopping and going like, hey, is this what we actually want to be about? Um, and then that's what their culture just kind of becomes through inaction and not because there's some central, you know, committee going like, Hey, let's have a culture where people don't feel like they can unplug on vacation. Let's yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll fix yeah. it with a sabbatical right? Three in months. seven years. It, so. Once you earn it. <laughs> um, I think that's such an incredible point and not one that I thought through Danielle, but as I'm sitting here mm-hmm. listening to you talk as a young lawyer, I remember going into my first Um, review meeting with my comp committee and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I've made a list of all the things I'll do better next year. And I'm prepared to defend my myself about my value here. And I swear, you know, there are reasons for these things. And I sit down and they're like, you know, Ashlyn, killer year. And I'm like, what? Um, But here's all the things that I didn't do well or that the the metrics that I don't feel like I met. And some of this is on the responsibility of the maybe I'm the only person in this room that has this sort of type A personality of achievement where I've projected what I the law firm expects of me. And because they haven't clearly stated or haven't clearly communicated, I've just decided that I'm not meeting those needs or meeting those standards. And so no one has told me I'm not doing well. No one has told me I'm not meeting metrics. But in my mind, 
I'm just, it's not good enough. And so some of this, I think, could be alleviated by, um, you know, some, some, I don't know whether it's confidence training or what we can do for young lawyers to say, you know, if you don't know what the culture is where you're going to work, um, you know, start asking, start looking, start trying to, but but also give yourself some grace that you don't have mm. to um, engage in this sort of hustle all of the time. And and Danielle, I just think it was so spot on for you to say when when they're not telling you what your culture is, you adopt it, you project it, and then you just get in the rat race and then you know you wake up 30 years later and you're like oh whoops um yeah Uh, here we are here we are yep (laughs) oopsie (laughs) i'm i'm curious um what do you think is the interaction for both of you what do you think is the interaction between a firm's business model and its culture particularly as it relates to um, the experience that's created for attorneys and other uh, folks that work in the law, but under this broader vein of, you know, observing that the traditional approach to law is broken. Um, uh, for a little bit of added context, when I think about it, and I think it's important for all of our listeners and viewers to adopt my way of thinking about it, just so everyone's clear. Um, we but... should lay that in the intro <laughs> groundwork here. It is important and imperative that we all initially agree to agree with Sam. If you want to know if your thoughts are right, just ask me what mine are. And then if yours are different, then you'll know that you're wrong. Um, oh, dear God. Can we edit that out? Nope. We should probably leave that in. Um, <laughs> someone please clip that and shame me with it later. Um, if, yeah, yeah. If anyone needs sarcasm text, if they're reading a transcript, this is the sarcasm font. <laughs> this is an italics. Um, the way I've thought about this is that um, so much of what's created is a result of um, incentives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we as as uh, humans respond to incentives. We respond to cultural incentives through a desire to fit in, um, to be part of a tribe, um, to be part of a community, to perform as expected, to integrate, to assimilate. Um, so we respond to those um, uh, incentives and also our own uh, internal desires to have and belong to a place that harmonizes with our own personal values. And so I think that's the cultural side of things. And then I think there's the business model side of things, which is I would almost rate those on like a different level um, from a hierarchy of needs standpoint, um, if you will, that things like, hey, I've got to survive, so I've got to go make money. Um, I've got to advance so that I can climb the hill. And so in order to advance, I've got to perform according to these different ways. So this is how I'm compensated. This is how I advance. You know, this is how I achieve status and all these other things. And so I, I think of those two components as being related, but creating these really strong, potentially really strong sets of incentives um, that then creates behavior and it's the behavior that then creates and perpetuates either the traditional model or a new model and and so on and so forth. And so I'm, I'm curious for both of you as you think about you know the interconnectedness of business model and culture do you do you see them as being really that connected and what kind of role if you do or if you don't what kind of role do you think that they play in creating um and perpetuating what we see in traditional law i think they're very much interconnected um and can definitely impact one another equally and I think uh, for me, what comes to mind, a good example of that is, you know, the yearly review mm. opportunity and maybe what's incentivized through the business model and culturally there through that process. And who are the associates that firms may be looking at because of their business model of looking at books, right? How many clients did you have? What, how many new clients did you bring into the firm this year? What is your billable hour? And And those may be the things that through the review process where you're going to reward somebody when you are going through that versus why are we not maybe reviewing or rewarding something that's more culturally related? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, do you have good emotional intelligence skills with your clients? <laughs> How are your relationships? Right. Some of those more soft skills that we don't talk about because we talk more about uh, the traditional model of how we incentivize employment 
when those things are just as valuable and those things, if not even more, perpetuate your culture. Um, so even when it comes down to that process, I would say those two things are very interconnected. And that's just a small example when you start talking about business model and firm culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that um, I would even go so far as to say that your business model is is probably your dri- what drives your culture, even if it doesn't match what your stated culture is. So if your business model um, incentivize it, you reward the behavior that you want, mm-hmm. um, and and that is just human beings 101 if you or you know even dogs that's how you train dogs as well but also humans um is that you see behavior that you like and then you reward it and then you see more behavior that you like and you reward that and then we are all sort of trying to get rewarded for behavior um and if all that we're rewarding um in terms in money talks it just does in terms of how we're incentivizing um people who are showing up to work um we have to incentivize it, we have to spend money incentivizing behavior that we prioritize or that we want our firms to see or the, the culture that we want to have. And if all we're incentivizing or rewarding is production, um, and it's a business, I understand that production is important as a business owner. Um, but if that's what we're rewarding, then that's what's driving our culture is um, a need to produce. And um, no, most, if not all firms, at least any culture's statement of culture that I've read don't say, our culture is about production. We just want you to make us all money uh, and make yourself some money along the way. And maybe we would respect the hell out of that. But, um, but no, you know, usually it's like we want excellence. Well, great. We want excellence uh, in production. So um, I think we just, it, w- they're inexplicably connected. I think one drives the other. Um, and then I think culture just, you know, tries to keep up. Danielle, I'm, I'm curious, which one do you think is stronger, culture or business model? And if you say it depends, you get points. I don't know what the points are redeemed for, but if you can work that in and the more times you can work it in. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I'm going to lean towards culture. And the reason why I say that is because I think that aspect of how we treat one another, because when I think about culture, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. How do we treat each other? How do we treat each other as colleagues? And how do we treat our clients? Uh, it, it becomes particularly important. We want to go back to how we're interconnected. Our culture with our clients ultimately impacts our business model and model and bottom line. Uh, and these things can sometimes be very circular in nature. And I think if mm-hmm. you build a strong, positive culture that creates environments, right, that produces lawyers who feel like they have strong well-being, that can then increase their competence, who can then provide great services for their clients um, and create those really good relationships. What's the potential impact? Those clients go out and say, hey, I had a really great experience with this firm. And so the added benefit to that is then hopefully what that does is that also increases your referral rate. It increases your reputation within the legal community and within your community in which you are situated with, which will then ultimately impact your business model. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good, that's a good answer. It is a good answer. Yeah. What do you think, Ashley? Um, ask the question again. W- which do you think is stronger business model or culture for most firms? Cause of course there's always going to be differences. Uh, which do I think is, you mean like the stronger in the sense of the most prevalent Oh, like what are people experiencing the most? Or or which one do you think creates the strongest drive and set of incentives in terms of creating what a firm becomes? Oh. um, And the experience it creates for people. I think um, I, it depends. (laughs) You get points. Yay, I love points. (laughs) Um, I think in a... In a lot of situations, in a lot of scenarios, um, I think that culture can do the trick. I think if you have a culture that people respond well to, they are willing to put up with a lot more or experience a lot more or even give more if they um, are working in a place where they feel rewarded and valued and seen and like they belong. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think... Um, in, in a lot of instances, culture uh, can be a very powerful driving force. Um, I think when we talk about law firm business model, though, um, I, I do think that 
um, the business model, where the dollar comes from, how the dollar gets counted, and then whose dollar it is. I think all of those things are will continue to drive um, whether that culture is is real or not. Does that make sense? So both. How is that? Yeah, that's a good answer. So I'm going to cover all the bases, and I'm going to say that I think business model is stronger. Um, I think, well, the reason I feel that way is because of where I think it creates the most impact, um, and I think it's it's it creates the most impact at the very beginning of an attorney's career, um, because I think when when folks and this this kind of tacks on to one of our. Um, other conversations, and I think uh, uh, when when people come out of law school and they're directly going into the practice of law, their first experience is going to be very, very formative on them, of course. But that's the time when people are coming out with, in many cases, huge amounts of student loan debt. So they've got that incredible financial pressure. They're starting to think about all of the cultural and social expectations around, okay, I got to go buy a house in a nice neighborhood. I got to be able to prepare to go put my kids in private school. I got to do all these other things. And so all of those things, especially in, you know, 2023, when um, my food bill is now um, $5,000 a day. Um, yes. <laughs> I had too many kids. If I'd known the economy was going to go in this direction. <laughs> Have y'all seen the price of Halloween candy? Good Lord. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> That's why we gave out extra Costco sized fruit snacks, but in this uh, economy, we, we went trick or treating and we just, we just asked for fresh produce. <laughs> uh, do you have any eggs? <laughs> we don't want your candy. I am looking for, <laughs> do you have a can of organic non GMO? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, so I think that that creates a lot of pressure on people to maximize their outcomes um, uh, through optimizing their experience under the business model. And the business model has very clear for a lot of people that are coming from a place of, hey, I got grades, you know, and I got instant feedback. Culture often doesn't give you really tangible instant feedback, um, but business models often do. If I get this many billable hours, I get the feedback of I make my bonus. Um, if I do this, if I do this, I make partner or if I you know, do whatever. But um, so I think it creates more clear incentives and I think it creates incentives that speak most closely to the pain points and the pressures that attorneys feel most strongly early in their careers. And I think that that forms and drives a lot of behavior. Um, I think that that is then perpetuated longer term because as soon as people drink enough of the Kool-Aid, I'm being very cynical here. I want it's everyone okay. to know I'm baseline a very optimistic <laughs> and hopeful person. <laughs> That's true. Um, but I think as soon as people drink enough of the Kool-Aid, um, then it's like it's just inside of them now. It's not like you get in, you know, six, seven, eight years after having committed to that process of, you know, earning those dollars, trading those billable hours for um, hopefully those things on the personal side that you value a great deal. And then you just shut it off and go, okay, now I can go do what I really value, what I really prioritize. I think at that point, you've had to make those moral justifications to convince yourself of that. And I think that what that in many instances ends up doing is creating something where the business model um, causes the culture to conform to the business model. And then in essence, the culture begins to reflect the business model. And so I think in many firms, the, the culture has become just a reflection. Um, it's just become the mirror um, showing us what the business model actually is. Um, because of what we've allowed. I think some of that goes back to what you commented on earlier, Danielle, about, um, you know, there's all these unstated things because no one, many people are not thinking intentionally and being thoughtful about like, hey, what if we design our work differently? What if we had a culture on purpose? Um, I think where that can be really different is where people really, people with privilege, people with power, people with authority make really intentional um, decisions and commit to a longer term process to say like, no, our culture is what we're going to choose to value most. And we're going to make our business model be the mirror and reflect our culture rather than the other way around. Right. Cause I right. think, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, do you, do you yeah. Have, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with you on that part, right? It's it's going to take people with power and privilege to put culture first and let mm-hmm. that shape their business model. But I think what's interesting about it is, is that if we allow for a culture that is collaborative mm-hmm. and we allow for a culture that gives safety in speaking up and mm-hmm. speaking out and and questioning or, or, or asking, you know, the whys or the house, so to speak, to start conversations, then what I think that that can can spark then is something that would be a benefit to the firms, which is you get collaboration and feedback. You have the opportunity to be innovative because of that collaboration, mm-hmm. um, particularly if maybe you're somebody that has been there really long term and you're used to doing ways, things the way we've always done them. Allowing for those open conversations uh, gives opportunity for learning, I think, both ways. Um, So, you know, firms that want to make changes, I think looking at both your business model, but then really diving into what you want your culture to be can set you up, I think, for more success should you want to change that business model. Yeah. No, I think that's so well put. I think so many people feel like it's an either or. I've got to either pick my business model or pick my culture. And if I pick my culture, I'm not going to have good financial outcomes. I'm going to sacrifice. Um, and I think from your experience, and you've you know uh, captured it so well here, and you referenced it earlier, and, and I hate to be this guy because I don't want to sound like Pollyanna. I promise I'm not. But but truly, I believe this, that when you do the right thing and you commit to it over time, good things happen. I mean, you create these virtuous cycles where doing the right thing causes you to retain the top talent who takes care of the best clients, um, who then you know drive the financial performance of the firm. And it just creates this cycle that perpetuates itself. Um, and, it, and I love that. Um, I think it's one of the great, um, it's one of the great, um, you know, inspirations or, or hopes that I have is that people will start to see that and that they'll listen to you and that they'll listen to the data. They'll listen to the experiences and the observations that when re- people really commit to doing the right things, to doing those, you know, to making those hard short-term choices, they really, truly get those, you know, amazing long-term results. Yep. Well, as we close out today's episode, um, first off, Ashlyn and Danielle, I want to thank you so much for, um, you know, just bringing so many wonderful thoughts uh, and observations to this, to this conversation. I'm really challenged by a number of your observations and um, comments on things. I'm going to be, be really mulling on a number of them for a while and thinking about how I can do a better job, you know, modeling for our team at Foreman Law and, um, you know, how I can just continue to try to keep improving what we're doing from a culture and a business model perspective. Um, but as we close out today's episode, um, you know, what are, what are some key thoughts or, uh, you know, challenges or tips that you have, um, each of you for, for folks as they're listening today? Yeah, you know, I, I think this time around, I'm going to give a tip for firms, and that is to ask yourselves the question, what is your culture? Because mm-hmm. so often, as we identified today in this episode, oftentimes maybe we don't know, we haven't asked those questions. And so I think really taking a dive into that um, can help you along the way, um, developing that business model, retaining your work culture. So I highly encourage if you haven't done it, do it. And then if you do do it, be open to feedback and be open to be from feedback from all the generations within your firm, um, because that's going to ultimately be the way that you're going to have the ability to change that culture is by listening. That's great. Yeah. Um, Mine is a challenge um, to probably both um, lawyers who are parents um, and and successfully modeling that or engaging in that um, at their law firms. I would really challenge them to share uh, the level of work 
and um, sacrifice and the variety of things it takes to do both well, uh, vulnerably and openly with those that are on your team or that you're recruiting. Because just like Instagram or social media, when we only see the parts of it that are working, we are made to feel like, why is it so easy for them and it's not easy for me? And why are these parents such successful lawyers and partners at law firms and I can't even get my kids dressed in the morning? And the more um, that is, you know, working moms, but even working dads just normalize the idea that this is difficult. It's difficult to practice law by itself. It's difficult to practice law and raise a family. All of these things are tough things, but normalizing that um, it's not easy and and allowing and creating space for people to learn from your experience or at least um, acknowledge that, you know, it doesn't look the way it always looks on Instagram. I'm getting ready to post our family photos and I I must always share. Before we took these photos, I threatened a lot of harm to everyone in them. So know that we look like we have it together, but truly this was uh, a, a work of art on our photographer's part. And I think it's important to be transparent and realistic about what it takes to get there. No, that's great. Um, my, my tip is uh, to take 15 minutes and uh, find somebody who doesn't have access and create access for them. Um, so much of, I think, breaking free from the traditional model is giving people the ability to leave, giving them the ability to say no to things. And if people aren't in a position where they have enough freedom, enough flexibility, enough confidence to go like, hey, I can reach out to somebody in another firm and say, are you hiring in this area? And know that that's a conversation I can have in safety and confidence. Or if they don't have a book of their own business or they don't have any of these other things that are going to even allow them to entertain the conversation with themselves about, hey, what would it look like if I decided that this place is toxic and the best thing for me and my family is I'm going to go somewhere else? Um, if they don't even have the ability to start that conversation, they're just going to remain there. And you have the opportunity. We all have the opportunity to look for those people and go, I can just do something really simple to create access. I can invite them to this board meeting. I can invite them to meet this client with me. I can help make an introduction for them to help create access and start that process moving. And you can do it in 15 minutes with an email. So I love it. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode. Um, as we've talked in more depth about um, a lot of things, but in particular, how the traditional approach to law is broken. Um, thank you for joining us um, on this journey. We're excited to continue with, uh, continue it with you um, in the episodes to come. Thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful day.